You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Fear No Evil, released January 16th, 1981. It was written and directed by Frank Lelogia and released by AFCO Embassy Pictures. Bernard Lee died the day that this film was released. Oh. Bernard Lee most famously played M for the first 11 James Bond films. As this episode is posting, it is now January 23rd, 2021, which means it's been exactly six years since Richard and I debuted the Phoenix Foundation, a MacGyver rewatch podcast, which also makes today the birthday of MacGyver himself, Mr. Richard Dean Anderson. And more importantly, today is the birthday of longtime listener and our first patron here on Vintage Video, Costa Dinos. Happy birthday, Costa. The working title of this was Mark of the Beast, but it was retitled Fear No Evil in post. Uh. I think I like Mark of the Beast better. I do too, but now that I think about it, I think we have another movie called Mark of the Beast on our 1981 schedule. Do we? That doesn't it's, sound no, familiar. No, Image of the Beast. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Writer, director, producer Frank Lelogia was a go-getter. He and his cousin Charles <laughs> and their attorney Carl Reynolds went all over their hometown of Rochester, New York, raising $25,000 from supporters. They used the money to form Lelogia Productions in November of 1978. They intended to produce a comedy at first, but many investors, especially in the wake of Halloween's success, believed horror to be a more commercial genre. Charles had noticed Bolt Castle on Alexandria Bay in Rochester and suggested they center the story there since the location is a perfect fit for horror, and I agree. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool location. Yeah. I liked it a lot, and I was thinking that I was surprised that I haven't seen it in another movie before. Yeah. yeah. And it looks totally different now. It's all been... Like, uh, no, it's pretty much the same. Well, it doesn't... In this movie, because of the time of the year that they shot it, it looks sure. kind of decrepit. Yeah. But, like, seeing it in... But there's like, parts that are on the water, and there's parts that are, like, on the hill behind yeah, there's, it. There, there are parts that look like they're, they've are they been flooded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah that's yeah. how much on the water they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that shit is on the lake. Lake side <laughs> my ass. Lake on. <laughs> Frank wrote the film on a salary of $180 a week and continued raising money with Charles until by the start of production, they had raised $550,000. Wow. The film was shot in nine weeks with a non-union cast and crew. When production wrapped, the film was still in need of $150,000 worth of visual effects. They screened a two and a half hour cut for Avco Embassy without special effects and spent four months working out a deal to finish and distribute the film and Avco retained worldwide distribution rights and a profit share. Part of these negotiations included a demand from Avco that zombies be added to the plot. (laughs) By the film's release, the budget added up to about $1.5 million, and it scored about $3.5 million in theaters, so it paid for itself. It was originally due for release in May of 81, but Avco had sold another title, Night Kill, to television, and slid Fear No Evil into Night Kill's theatrical slot. Night Kill was originally on our list for last year, and I was in the middle of my second watch when I realized that it never actually played in any theaters, so we dropped it from the schedule. But it's worth checking out Jacqueline Smith and Robert Mitchum in a detective psychological thriller murder mystery. 
Kino Lorber has a beautiful Blu-ray. My only complaint is that whoever Avco sold it to cut around all the gore and sexiness for TV, and it never made it back into the final cut mm. for the home video market. I don't know why you'd want to put it in a January spot, though. It seems like a bad place for a horror. I mean, it's a, now. I mean, maybe it was different in '81, but now January is a dumping ground. Yeah, and it just seems like it's not a great place to put a horror movie. I, I do think that it seems, even for Avco, to be a lower-budget title for them, though. Um, yeah. And I think it was a, a low-risk situation. This is, you know, first-time director. He was in his mid-20s um, that they were just like, let's just put it here. If people react to it, that's great. And if they don't, we only paid $1.5 It's just surprising to me because I feel like in 81, there's just, there's just nowhere near the amount of competition that... That's the, true. The, the release schedule has these days. But honestly, Avco wasn't slouching either. This yeah. was, this wasn't their only movie for the year. They have a lot of great stuff coming out all, yeah. all through the early 80s. That's fair. We open, slowly zooming out of a painting of God. And God endowed one specific archangel with striking beauty, wisdom, and power. He named him Lucifer and promised him eternal life in heaven. But Lucifer asserted independence and proclaimed himself to be like the Most High. I am like the Most High. <laughs> like, out of anybody, I am the Most High. The promise broken and driven from heaven, Lucifer vowed to wreak vengeance and suffering upon all mankind. And God dispatched three of his warrior angels Mikael, Gabriel, and I, Raphael, to seek out Lucifer's incarnation as man, to smite the very heart of all evil, and pave the way for the eve of the second coming, the second coming of the Creator. We see a man in a rowboat passing through a stone archway with fog billowing through it. This is Raphael, the man whose narration we've been hearing, and he's dressed as a priest. He rows through the archway seeking out the other two archangels and carrying with him a large metal crucifix. Raphael steps into a small stone building and finds a man naked, hanging from the ceiling by ropes around his wrists. He's covered in cobwebs, suggesting he's been here for a minute. He steps past this man and through a room decorated with dead animals strung up to the ceiling. Dogs, birds, all sorts of shit. Suddenly, a woman's hand swings down in front of him and then she drops from the ceiling to this stone floor he does the sign of the cross over her, and suddenly her eyes open and her pupils are white. She begins vomiting blood and throws a hand around Raphael's neck. He bashes the woman's head in with a stick until she loosens her grip on his throat. We get a super wide shot establishing a castle as lightning flashes all around it. Raphael stops to catch his breath in a hallway when a figure is silhouetted in the door ahead of him. A very skinny naked man screams in a monstrous voice and runs away. <laughs> Raphael follows. Eventually, Raphael stops to catch his breath again when he looks up at a balcony and the skinny man screams over it at him. The skinny man has sideburns that almost reach the sides of his mouth and needles for teeth. His pupils are bright orange and he has Count Chocula eyebrows. <laughs> again, Raphael gives chase until the man squeezes flat against a tree in the yard like the world's worst hide-and-seek player. <laughs> He introduces himself with a name that I can't understand because of the mix, and I didn't have subtitles to work with. I am Ronamal. I am Ronam. In this lifetime, yes. He addresses Raphael as Father Thomas Damon. 
before crossing his arms and transforming into a woman on the ground. She calls out to the father for warmth, but he resists. The woman transforms back into the skinny man who shouts, I will be reborn! He reaches out a hand with a cross burned into the palm upside down and summons the crucifix from Raphael. It flies straight across to him and pierces through the center of his chest, pinning him to the tree. Is he is he directing that? Because it seems weird that I think he, he would is. pull that into himself. Because it, well, I think I think he's trying to get back to a spawn point. Yeah, exactly. Rather rather than because we'll see later uh, that this crucifix is used as like a part of a banishment. Mm. Uh, in this instance, it, he, you know, he just says, "Well, I just I'm just gonna die and do this over again." Yeah. Before you can use that thing on me, I'm going to kill myself, and then I'll pop into a baby. Okay. I think that makes more sense now, because I wasn't realizing that the stabbing with a crucifix wasn't killing him. Right. You got to use the the staff's other powers. Right. Now we get our opening credits. We see a bunch of people hanging out at a seaside park. It doesn't look like it's particularly nice weather outside. Um, It's very windy and overcast, but everyone looks like they're freezing, and maybe they didn't have their pick of days to shoot this. We get some funky slow-mo in this section. A title tells us that this is upstate New York, 1963. We cut to a man filling out paperwork in a baby book about the birth of his child as he shouts at several other men indecipherably. I'm glad they added the year here, though, because the opening sequence, I was very confused about yeah. what era right. we were in. Because but I also didn't know how close together these two moments well, are that's, either. Well, right, that's right. true, but we learn, we, we see pretty quickly it was, it was close that it after. was close yeah. together. Um, but... I was really confused because a you know, priest outfit doesn't show us much and this decrepit Giant castle looking castle. didn't yeah. help us much. And the other guy was basically naked. So. Yeah. But when did Count Chocula come out now? <laughs> the baby's mother worries that it's getting sick. While outside, more experienced fathers are teaching the new dad to smoke a cigar. Unfortunately, they're teaching him wrong and he's on the verge of throwing up here. It sounds like they're just about to head to the baptism, but they're running behind schedule. The baby is screaming the whole way to the church and all through the ceremony. A heavy wind blows open the doors to the church and suddenly blood is pouring out of the baby's arm into the baptismal font. A splash of blood is tossed in the choir boy's face and it almost looks like his left eye just exploded out of his head. (laughs) I'm impressed you know it's called a font. (laughs) I definitely didn't Google that. (laughs) Similar splashes of blood appear on the mother and priest before the grandmother wrestles the baby away and rushes it out of the church while everyone just stands and watches. We cut back to the house where the baby was born and it's in shambles. Window frames are hanging off of the house and there's trash in the yard. We crossfade to months, years later, and Ivy is taking over the porch. There's more trash in the yard now, and we hear the father's voice inside ask, How much longer are we going to allow him to run our lives? The mother chastises him for putting his needs above the baby's, and we crossfade again to see the vines further ensnaring the home, and the porch is now falling apart. There's a lot more trash in the yard. The last crossfade adds a lot more vines and a title that reads 18 years later. Inside the house, Marion, the mother, brings a birthday cake with 18 candles to the dinner table. The dining room reminds me of the one in Honeysuckle Rose where they had the ice cream fight, (laughs) but I'm not going to look it up to see if it's the same room. Probably not. (laughs) I I think not. Plus, that is gross. Ice cream fights? Yeah. Yes. The father congratulates her for having taken care of this kid for 18 years with him, and then she moves to light all the candles on his birthday cake. Both parents seem shell shocked. And Dad heads upstairs to knock on Andrew's door. From inside Andrew's room, we see a book on a desk opened. And after several knocks from Dad, 
The book slams closed, in sync with the shadow in the background slamming the book and standing up. The implication here being that somehow Andrew is invisible and still casting a shadow, which is even more impressive than just being invisible. (laughs) (laughs) Is that more impressive or less impressive? Well, I'm seeing light bounce off of the wall, so light is clearly going through him one way. Right, that's true. But it's not going through him the other (laughs) way. So he's only invisible to the audience. (laughs) Right. That doesn't make sense. Still standing outside Andrew's door, a shadow steps forward out of the father's shadow to move down the steps, and he finds Andrew sitting at the dinner table without ever having left his room. I think these shadow effects are great. Yeah, I I thought it was really a neat effect, and I wish we had more of this, but this is the last invisibility power we'll see from Andrew. But it was a super simple way to sell all of this. That he's a weird kid and stuff's going on. Once his parents have sat down at the table with him, he lets his mother know that she missed a candle and strikes up a match to remedy her mistake. As soon as the match catches, the lights in the room go out, as do all of the other lit candles. It's a neat effect because I don't think they're being blown out. It's possible they're actually gas-lit candles that are being fueled through the cake because Mm -hmm. they just turn off. There's no smoke Hmm. coming up from them. It doesn't look like there's a jump cut. I, I think they literally just flipped a switch to turn off all the other candles. They actually sucked all the air out of the room. Oh my god. <laughs> Is that why the actor died? He didn't die. Dad stands to find a flashlight in the dark, assuming that they've tripped a fuse, and asks Marion to bring him the cake so he can start cutting it. Turns out a table is a perfectly good place to begin cutting a cake. I don't think he asked for it to cut. I this is this was my big gripe about this moment. I think he asked for the cake because it had lit candles and he wanted to use it as a as a light to find the flashlight oh my god i didn't even consider that (laughs) (laughs) but it's the most awkward scene when she carries it over like it's it seemed like she carries the cake with one candle in the middle of it to help him find a flashlight with yeah but like she's she's going to pass it to him but and then I, it looks like he's reaching for it, and then he doesn't. Well, he like pulls his because hands obviously what the goal of this scene was for the actors was to drop the cake. Right, I don't right. know if they had additional cakes, and they and, and so they basically just had one shot at the scene. But she really obviously just drops the cake. Yeah. <laughs> Marion accuses him of having done it on purpose, dropping this cake in their shag carpeting. <laughs> and she shouts at him and slaps him until he shoves her to the floor. When she struggles to get herself up, she starts grasping the corner of a nearby table, but succeeds only in dropping what I thought was an iron on her head. It yeah. was, was it not an iron? I thought it was an iron. Okay. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't tell. I don't know why that would be in the kitchen, but we're, we're seeing it from a weird there angle. There is garbage in their lawns. Yeah. Yeah. These are not the most tidy but people. <laughs> it, it cracks her in the head and knocks her unconscious. Possibly dead. So do we see her the rest we do. of the Oh, yeah. We, oh, we do. do see yeah, her yeah. Later. Many times. <laughs> we'll get to that because I didn't realize it was supposed to be the mom either. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Not until my second viewing. Dad rushes to her side, but looks back over at his son. Who are you? Who are you? Like his son did this. But I do have a question. Is the son doing this on purpose I don't right think now? so. Not and yet. And does he know that he's doing these things? Because he was invisible and snuck past his dad. So that feels intentional. But this whole scene doesn't feel like he's intentionally doing these things. It's like bad things just happen around him. There, there's definitely some times where I feel like he is not in control or he's ashamed of what he's doing? I don't think he's doing anything on purpose until the third act. I think everything on the way is just his powers emerging mm. with okay. his sort of like devil puberty. <laughs> As if there's any other kind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the son doesn't answer these rhetorical questions of who are you, and we fade to black. 
We fade back up on a college campus with really weird piano music. Is this a college campus? I, no, it's a high school. You're right. I thought it was college at first because everyone is college age. Yeah. But you're right. It is a high school. It is a high school. Ooh, I like that. We get quick shots of school in session. A student turns in an assignment and flirts with the teacher for a grade improvement. The teacher starts calling out names to return everyone's reports. And Van Shaw, I think, is not responding. She absentmindedly taps a pen on her desk until the guy sitting next to her touches her hand and she finally hears her name. So I was really frustrated because I like I think we mentioned before uh uh, aside from the podcast that is like trying to figure out who these people are in this movie right so the purpose of having a classroom scene where you read names aloud and is have that these people are the names they use is that yeah so this is how you identify these characters specifically in the credits yeah but he's using their last names and all of the characters are credited by their first name right <laughs> and i'm like yep. i was so aggravated that i can't i was like watching this scene this scene's worthless to me i'm yeah. not getting anything out of this <laughs> yeah but it sounds like he's saying Vanshaw. I find out later it's Fanshaw with an F. Mm. But that's obviously not her first name. And yeah. literally no one calls her by her first name, which is what she's credited as. Right. So the whole time I was like, I have no fucking idea who this character is or where I'm supposed to figure out what her name is. Does she get, so she gets called Fanshaw again later? She gets called Fanshaw a couple times. People refer to her as the Fanshaw girl. But no one in the whole entire movie, I've watched it twice now, calls her Julie which is what she's called in the credits. Okay. So I was like, I have no idea which character this is. It becomes obvious later. Yeah. Because she has more than one credit, but... Yeah. But the guy sitting next to her, uh, his name is Landers. But again, we just call him Landers in this scene. No one ever calls him Landers again. And he's credited as Mark, <laughs> who, which I don't think anyone says Mark in the whole movie. Perfect. Or no, he does call himself Dr. Mark Anders at one point. Um, because he intends to go to medical school but it's it's a situation where the credits don't help like you said because in this scene he's only referred to as landers mm -hmm. but he gets his assignment back and the teachers gives him like a passive aggressive dig at his stupidity you sure you want to go to college kid once all of the pages are handed out the teacher starts to lecture the class on all of their shit performances the class clown tony pipes up from the back and pokes fun at the teacher for having sex with a student 20 years his junior. Like, ha ha, you're having sex with a really young lady. Uh, uh, <laughs> also, sorry, I, I have to like back up a little bit to Landers getting made fun of for his education. When yeah. he gets like accepted to Columbia. Yeah. So, I mean, if... It's like he didn't get an F. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if he got accepted to Columbia, he must have at least somewhat good grades. Yeah. The teacher approaches Tony's desk and gives him a zero on his assignment for his insolence. Tony crumples it up and throws it in his face before walking out of the classroom undeterred. Can you do that? Can 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 you walk can you, out of class? No, no, can you can you change someone's grade based on your opinion of them? No, definitely <laughs> <Why> not. not? <laughs> I mean, you can. You would be and fired he, for and it. And he did. Yeah. I don't know. It's 81. I guess it depends I feel on like, the school, yeah. Yeah. Boomtown Rats I Don't Like Mondays plays us out of the scene. The soundtrack to this, the whole film. Yeah. It's well, pretty great. That's another yeah. thing that's insane. I, I was shocked when these songs started playing throughout this movie because I was like, this seemed fairly low budget to me, but I feel like even in 81, these songs were famous enough yeah. to cost a pretty penny. Mm -hmm. Yep. I have a feeling that they were used willy-nilly without checking with anybody, and for some reason this movie keeps sneaking by from format to format. <laughs> you think that they didn't pay for these rights? 
I don't know how they could possibly afford all the music in this movie. I don't unless either. it was the most expensive part. Uh, maybe. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that they spent, yeah. what did you say, one point something on 1. it? 1.5 million. 1.5 million. It's like 100,000 for the, you know, anarchy in the UK. Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying that I feel like you could have shot this movie for a lot less than that. So maybe they did spend a million dollars on music rights. Maybe. Just before the bell, the teacher hands out the last grade in the class, an A-plus for Andrew Williams, the boy whose 18th birthday cake wound up on the floor. The teacher excuses the class, and on his way out, Andrew notices that Vanshaw, Fanshaw left a book on her desk, and he collects it to return to her. In the hallway, we see an angry girl who, 45 minutes from now, someone will refer to as Marie. <laughs> <laughs> She's at her locker, and it is suddenly crowded by three other girls in matching golden jackets. She's getting her jacket out of the locker, too. They're part of a, a club. I think that, I think their jackets say Queen Bee on them, or... No, yeah, I so think they're the bee, like the, the bees, the yeah. bees. But the one girl who's like the head, her jacket Marie says is the queen, queen bee. bee, right? Um, and they're they're all looking at the mirror. She has a full length mirror on the inside of her locker that apparently they all paid two dollars. Like they all chipped in to buy this right. full length mirror so they could all use it. She closes the locker on one of their faces and tells them to buzz off, in keeping with the bee theme. Right. She hands them both joints and they all walk out together. In the parking lot, one of the kids uses a Slim Jim to open the door of a convertible. Not that, Not that kind, kind of, of a Slim Jim, Jim Richard. <laughs> and then he takes a bite out of it. And all of his teeth fall out of his mouth because it's made out of really I, I, strong metal. I know that that's what you call it. <laughs> Just I couldn't get the image out of my... <laughs> <laughs> slim, slim, I guarantee you one idiot, at least, has tried to open a car using a fucking meat stick. <laughs> But anyway, this guy gets into the convertible, and he cranks the stereo up real loud. Andrew watches from a caged-in fire escape in his long black pants and long sleeve black sweatshirt. Suddenly, we're hearing Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols, which I would have guessed was way out of this movie's price range, though the song starts with the lyrics, I am an antichrist, which is appropriate if a bit on the nose. We see Tony and Marie making out against a wall, and then they open a door and run down some stairs into a boiler room. Suddenly, the girl has her boobs out and is waving them at Tony before running away from him. They have sex very quickly down here, but this confused me. He leaves her there while she's still getting dressed. Right. And then when he gets to his car, she's already standing there with her friend. I was like, did he just cheat on his girlfriend with someone downstairs, or is this the same girl? Because it's she like tortoise and hair up to the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's just a weird uh, blocking situation. And I thought something crazy was going to happen in the boiler room. You, you have a boiler room. Nope, nothing. Something's like, it's like, like I thought like he was going to like push her up against the edge of the boiler and she was going to get her back burned or something like that. And do you remember the last movie we saw that? She doesn't actually get burned, but they fuck oh. against a boiler. I can't remember. Against a boiler? I remember us talking about it, but. It's a, it's a water heater tank. It's in a stripper's dressing room. It was uh, schizoid. Schizoid. Mm. When he, when he meets her there at the strip club and then has sex uh. with her. Tony gets back to his car and starts screaming at the kid sitting in the driver's seat. The kid claims that the car was unlocked when he found it, and Tony believes him and slaps his girlfriend Marie hard across the face for leaving it that way. You left the car door open this morning, man. That's a $200 sound system I got in there. It's a Blomkamp. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me one Blomkamp. 
Looks like I'm going to have to keep calling this person Tony's girlfriend or angry girl because I have no idea what he's saying here. Leanna, Lillian, Luann. It turns out he's saying Marie. <laughs> he's not saying Marie. But he says, uh, you, left the, you left the door open this morning, man. But he's swallowing the word. So I heard Anne at the end and thought he was saying Luann. Andrew sneaks up behind another car in which a couple are making out and just stares at them through the back window until they notice. When they ask what he wants, he hands over Fanshawe's book that she left in class and she locks eyes with him. It seems like we're seeing inside her head now as flashes of her and Andrew having sex somewhere, either in the past or as a fantasy that he's forcing into her brain. After Andrew leaves, Fanshawe's boyfriend asks, what's the matter? I felt him touch me. We cut back to Andrew's neighborhood where his father is riding a bicycle under a pleasant score. Apparently he's a mailman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he's riding up to a neighbor and she's gardening, but the mix is so fucking bad in this movie that I have no idea what her name is. Everyone is mumbling under the blaring score. Brianna. Oh, yes, Mr. Wood. I didn't hear you come up. Brianna, Joanna, Anna, Leanna. The credits are no help either. Turns out he's saying Buchanan. Is that what it sounds like to you? Um, I I couldn't figure out what he was saying, but I thought since she referred to him as Mr. Williams, I assumed it was her last name. Last name, because all all we're hearing is the Annan part of Buchanan, um, because the rest of it is is under the score. But I just like just if if the music is playing over the person's name, say it one more time in the conversation, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to tell who these people are. But then that only matters if you're writing out a beat for beat explanation of yeah, what's happening I, in the movie. It's it's funny because when you were watching this movie, you were pretty annoyed at yeah. the first go around, and I watched the movie. And I'm like, this doesn't bother me at all. I'm enjoying this movie. <laughs> Mr. Williams starts by bonding with her with some garden talk, and then he brings up his son and how he's doing great in school. Mr. Williams says that he did terrible in school, and Mrs. Buchanan says that most parents wish that their children would outdo them. Mr. Williams just leaves without saying another word, like he's offended, and she rushes after him. I've chased you away with my ranting. Forgive me. Ranting? If anything, that was just a platitude. It's just a nice thing. It's like as inoffensive as possible to just say, oh, yes, well, we want good things for our kids. Oh, I'm How sorry. I've offended you. you. I'm out of here. <laughs> I, I thought that, that he was engaging in an affair. Oh, maybe. I, I, th- I thought it was like, okay, they're, they're leading up to he's going to cheat on his wife with this woman. But then when she catches back up with him, she says, all of them refuse to acknowledge me. 18 years and their hearts are still black with guilt and shame. They refuse to hear the truth and accept. They refuse to accept the truth. They have eyes but cannot see. Father Damon was a good man and a good priest. He didn't kill anybody. Everybody else killed him. What the fuck are these two people talking about? They're talking about Father Damon. Who is this lady? Did we see her earlier? Nope. <laughs> who, who are they? Yeah. Who did this priest supposedly kill? And yes, they're talking about Father Damon from our cold open who it turns out was accused of murder after well, that guy got stabbed with the crucifix. He did stab a guy with the crucifix. No, he didn't. Well, the guy it, stabbed it himself like with yeah. the crucifix, his, I guess. His fingerprints are on the murder weapon. Right. Mr. Williams is so moved by her gibberish that he starts crying and rides his bicycle away. 
Did I mention that he's dressed like a mailman? Because he is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and at first, like I was like, oh, that's a neat, neat little bike. It's it's like a, tri- a big tricycle. Yeah. And and it was like, oh, it's because to, to carry mail. Right, but the <laughs> basket is also empty. Yeah. So uh, unless this is the last house, he's just doing it one at a time. <laughs> the woman starts walking back up to her house, and we hear satanic nonsense in the score. <laughs> Remember my death, Mikhail. Remember my words to you. Oh, good. Now we go to the flashback to explain what the hell everyone was talking about. The woman, Buchanan, is in what looks like a jail cell with the priest from earlier. She's speaking to the Archangel Raphael in a body named Father Thomas Damon. She explains that she is the Archangel Mikhail in a body named Margaret Buchanan. Raphael seems to be on his last legs and he's crying because he doesn't expect to be reincarnated again on their mission. The third archangel, Gabrielle, has still not been granted a body yet. So have they been chasing down Satan for 2,000 years and we just saw the last incarnation and the current incarnation? Well, it's probably longer than that because I imagine Satan has been on Earth longer than it's well, yeah, than that's Jesus. True. Yeah. So is the implication that they've been body hopping yes, this whole time? I think so. But for some reason, this is the last one. Well, for the Raphael. second the second coming is close. I believe yeah. is is the implication of what's happening now. Okay, and but, so I think they're running out of time. Yeah, but but yeah, but there's nothing to really to indicate why they're running out of time. Why they're running out of time now? Like the like there's no like it's like oh we needed to have it done by this this year. It's like why why would he not be reincarnated when? And when Gabriel or Gabrielle has been reincarnated, right. they just didn't know it yet. Or maybe he's saying he will be reincarnated, but he'll be an infant mm. when the second coming happens. And if the second coming happens before they kill the devil, then they're too late. Yeah, I'm not super clear on this on the the reincarnation timelines and and where and when they happen to find and meet each other because it seems you know terribly convenient that they would ever find each other yeah um in knowing they keep getting brought back in the same like square block so it seems like they just come in pre-existing bodies relatively close to each other yeah uh seems to be the case but they're running out of time because the second coming is happening soon and yeah well and, and yeah and not just relatively close to each other because uh the the murder in the cold open happened at that castle Right. And which is in the same town that everything's happening in the same town. Yeah. And maybe maybe because they die in that town they are re- reincarnated close to where they died. Right. So maybe they found each other all together over thousands of years yeah. and have been sort of migrating through time together, dying near each other and the same thing has been happening to Lucifer where he's dying and reincarnated. Right. Or they're for some where reason they are. arbitrarily locked in the shape of Rochester and they were Native yeah. Americans well, at well, one well, point. Well, I didn't know if it was like it was, if it was like like fallen rules where you die and then you have like so much time to get to your next body before you're you're not inhabiting something again Mm. interesting you know fallen fallen references don't know i I don't know that but i i feel like that can't be the case because for some reason there's a large gap where um Raphael is not incarnated well or gabriel is also not i I, I don't don't know know she is or she just hasn't matured in the body that she's in yeah it's there's a lot of questions on the rules of this universe but before Raphael dies he gives margaret a manuscript that he says will convince them whoever they are of something i don't know what this is for do we see it again after this point 
Um, I think she tries to give it to the current priest, but no matter what, like it's still the ravings of a of a crazed murderer. Yeah, yeah exactly. As far as they know. Back in Margaret Buchanan's home, she is praying to a picture of herself with Father Damon and asking how long it will be until she finds Gabrielle and the three of them can reunite. Raphael answers her prayer, though acknowledging that she can't hear his response. He tells us that Gabrielle is in a body now. Gabrielle is in body. She is in body. Andrew carries a tray of cookies and milk upstairs to a room. He has to unlock the door with keys on a giant ring, and inside we see an older woman. This is his mother, who is an invalid now because of an iron dropping on her head. So she's in a wheelchair. But it but it looks like this is like a decade later. It's it's not. I know, but she looks she, she looks so much older that I didn't think it was the same. Well, person. maybe it's because it was it was dark in the room for the birthday party, and then that it's, could be. it's in daylight now. But uh, she's sitting in her wheelchair staring out the window. Her wheelchair has cobwebs drifting from it, as does the desk in the background, suggesting that she hasn't moved a foot in several weeks. Regardless, she smiles back at him when she sees the cookies. Andrew notices a fly on the window and picks up a fly swatter, but then swats the wrong side of the window. (laughs) And the fly doesn't budge. He pushes the window closed. He pushes the window closed and puts a cigarette in the old woman's mouth before lighting it for her. She literally has cobweb strands from her head to her shoulders. Like she's a fucking Halloween decoration. I'm surprised that if she can't move that much that she can smoke a cigarette at all. Because I would think that like how would you like just be ash falling in your lap. Yeah. He steps outside and closes the door to lock it again. We see a ferry moving down river past the castle and the tour guide introduces it as Lawrence Bay Castle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what you see before you is the legendary Lawrence Bay Castle. Abandoned. Never completed. It was built by wealthy European immigrant Rosario Bonomo. Bonomo employed hundreds of immigrants to this country as dirt haulers and stone cutters. But during construction, word got back to the mainland that Bonomo had gone mad in the final months. Then he goes on to say that Manomo, or Bonobo, or whatever the fuck he's saying. (laughs) Did Christopher Nolan do the mix on this movie? Anyway. (laughs) Manolo employed many immigrants to build the castle, but apparently he went crazy before he finished the building, and the workmen kept disappearing, which sounds like an H.H. Holmes situation to me, where he would just hire a lot of people to work on a building and then murder them and put them Mm. in the walls of the house before he would hire the next people and not pay them either. I have to admit, this castle looks totally badass if it's not a miniature. And it's not. It's, it's not, real. Yeah. And the interior is gorgeous, too. It sounds from the conversation here like what we saw in the cold open happened fairly recently, and that guy, Raphael, was held accountable for the dude getting speared to a tree. The guy also says something about this castle being due for demolition, with the plan being to replace it with a golf course. Andrew is listening to the tour guide speech from the shore, and he considers this sacrilege. Uh which is why I feel uh, that this location was significant. Yeah. Like that this castle uh, is like the, the Dana Barrett apartment building. That makes sense. Of, yeah. of this universe. And that's why everything keeps happening in this town. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at the ironwork in Dana Barrett's apartment and it is very, very strange. <laughs> but he seems to know like the secrets of the castle, despite the fact that he doesn't have complete control over his powers yet. But he like walks over to 
a fountain in the castle yard and he talks about how he's going to restore it to its glory and he touches a lion statue and suddenly the whole thing lights up and starts blasting beams of light in every direction within the beams which have sort of a rainbow spectrum to them we're watching reverse footage of clouds drifting through the sky we cut to a guy driving a yellow convertible he pulls it up to a house and honks a couple times and then we cut from the person honking the convertible horn to tony's girlfriend and another girl at the window of an ice cream shop and they're hearing a honking and so they turn and walk up to a red convertible which is not the yellow one that we just saw pull right. up to the house i don't understand the point of this fake out but we watch a yellow convertible pull up the guy honks we hear two girls hear a honk and then walk up to a different car and it's tony he asks mary if she wants a ride to school and we cut back to that other convertible where it's Fanshawe's boyfriend, Mark Landers, and he's telling her that he's been accepted to Columbia University, and they hug in celebration. And then he proposes to her, sort of. Um, yeah. He just kind of says, hey, you're going to be Mrs. Landers, but let's not tell anybody until the party on Saturday or whatever. Just think, in a few years, it'll be Dr. Landers and 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 um, Mrs. Dr. Landers. So he just answered for her. And she even kind of makes a joke about that by saying, like, I have any choice. (laughs) This is a healthy relationship. (laughs) We're now a third of the way into this movie, and it hasn't really started yet. (laughs) Back to Tony and his girlfriend as she finally gets in the car to accept a ride to school. Tony slapped this girl hard for leaving his door unlocked, but he has no qualms with her eating chocolate ice cream in the passenger seat. Landers and Fanshawe get into his convertible and start driving. And I was sure that these cars were going to, like, Kit or something like uh, the whole point of showing two people are getting in cars at the same time what's gonna happen literally nothing in the school parking lot tony offers weed to andrew who passes on the opportunity tony tells andrew not to believe the rumor that smoking gives you boobs and points to his girlfriend whose name he finally reveals as marie look at maria she's as flat as a pancake and she's been smoking pop before she got burst she's obviously offended and gets out of the car to leave She tells Tony that it may not cause you to grow boobs, but it does seem to cause impotency. By the way, the whole scene is being played out under Blitzkrieg Bop, which, again, seems more expensive than this film should have been able to afford. After a bell rings, we cut inside the boys' locker room, where everyone's acting like they're going to fight each other. Then we move into the showers, where we find the most dicks since Can't Stop the Music last year. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) finally, a guy's harassing guys in the shower scene. I've been waiting for this. One of the guys comes up with a hilarious joke. Hey, Tony, Andrew sure is sexy. <laughs> Suddenly, all the guys are hitting on Andrew while he showers. Tony asks Andrew on a date, and when Andrew doesn't respond, he says, if you're not going to date me, you at least owe me a kiss. And everyone just laughs like this is normal bullying. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what would be, you know, <laughs> you know be really crazy if we kiss right now? <laughs> <laughs> Tony gets Andrew pushed against the corner and forces a hard kiss against his mouth. I honestly didn't expect this moment until it was happening. Yeah. It seems like Tony can't pull himself away, but they're locked. How could you? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, but they're locked in this kiss for like 15 to 20 seconds. And they're and, spinning around. Yeah. And Tony is struggling to escape. And I assumed that Andrew had like bit his tongue or something. Yeah. But when they eventually separate, it seems like neither one of them knows what happened, why they couldn't stop kissing each other. <laughs> Tony is very embarrassed that his joke about kissing another guy naked in the showers could be construed as gay. <laughs> 
He demands his friends keep quiet about this and storms out of the showers. But even as he leaves, a friend tries to hold him back so that they can talk it out and practically grabs his dick on his way out of frame. It's <laughs> just like, guys, just let go of each other. <laughs> they all follow Tony to make sure he's okay. And we cut to <laughs> this weird shot. There's two kids that are just beating the shit out of each other outside of a church. <laughs> And uh, then they notice Margaret arriving at the church. And when they see her going through the door, one of them goes, Hey, look, it's the witch. It's the witch. And then they just go back to punching each other. <laughs> it's a very weird uh, insert. I think that the that the purpose of this is to show that the town in general thinks she's crazy. Right. Probably because she defended uh, Father Damon so much. Right. Margaret kneels at the head of the church until a priest answers. And then she talks with him about Father Damon's diary. The priest doesn't want to hear what Margaret has to say because she's still trying to clear the record of a murderer, which goes against the will of God. She took a man's life. It was not a man. It was a product of the unholy trinity and remains so to this day. What are you trying to say? She tells the priest that what Father Damon killed was Lucifer incarnate. And the priest says, we've been over this. He reminds her that Damon was tried and convicted and she accuses him of betrayal. The priest starts yelling at her and then runs back to his little priest room to pray for strength. I looked it up. That's what they're called. <laughs> we cut to the front yard. It's called an office. <laughs> Isn't it called a rectory? It is called a rectory. <laughs> Just don't like saying that word. Rectory. <laughs> rectory. Damn near kildery. <laughs> we cut to the front yard of the house at night. It looks like the house where Landers picked up Fanshawe earlier, so this must be her home. The camera is suddenly inside a shaky POV, breathing heavily. The POV floats into Fanshawe's bedroom, and we suddenly cut to Andrew in bed with her. She seems to wake up while he fumbles at her waist, but she rolls over slowly and they kiss. The flashes of them in bed together that we saw earlier come from this scene. Andrew is shivering, and the muscles in his arm are just spasming as he leans over her. She tries repeatedly to shove him away, and he tears into her back with his fingernails before he leaves the bed. We see him standing completely naked in her doorway, and she awakens again in the morning, dripping with sweat and terrified. Through her window, she sees someone in flowy sleeves raising their arms in the air, but in a blink, the person disappears. She steps to the mirror to look for the scar from the fingernails, and she has three huge gouges down her back. But they're not, they're not like scabbed over and they're not bleeding. They're just yeah. mm -hmm. lines in the skin. Yeah. Yeah, but like deep, yes. deep gouges, like folds and lacerations, if you will. Now, was it me? But there was somebody else's reflection in the mirror too, right? Well, that's. I think she notices someone out the window, and when she turns around, oh, the person's gone. I, I thought that they were doing a camera trick where she. In oh, what? you're right. You're right. Yes. Okay. Um. When she, so she has like a a folded mirror. Right. Right. And in one of the reflections, we're seeing a different older woman. Correct. Right. Looking at the scratches on her back, and then in the other mirror, we can actually see her face. But the implication is that this is Gabrielle in the body of this girl. Oh, I was really unclear as to who that. Other but I don't know who decides. Is that what an archangel looks like? Just a regular human? Yeah. I like guess. shouldn't have been a weird like glowing specter with wings and shit. I don't know. I don't know archangels. I just know the X Men archangel. <laughs> we cut to andrew in the office of the high school where a guidance counselor is showing him acceptance letters from yale and harvard with full scholarships the counselor is very excited but he doesn't seem to care she gets him copies to show his parents we cut to a gym class where all the students are lining up williams is late to roll call the coach punishes his tardiness by assigning sit-ups and push-ups 
Andrew is still doing push-ups throughout the entire game of dodgeball. The music, editing, and shouting from the coach here makes the game seem especially manic, like something is about to explode. Andrew is shaking uncontrollably while he tries to do his push-ups. Suddenly, he pops up and his eyes have yellow contact lenses covering the pupils. And then the coach, impatient with the players, throws the dodgeball as hard as he can at one of the students. And then it pins him against the wall so hard that the kid's ribs are breaking and he's spitting blood all over his shirt. Andrew looks disgusted by what he's done. And the PE coach collapses thinking that he did this. Yeah. Yeah. But I I love that this... I love this escalation that's yeah. been happening with with Andrew and, and and not I don't think he understands his power and he's not really in control of it, but like it seems to just keep getting more and more intense right. each time something happens. And th- this kid that got killed here was Mark Landers. This was yeah, the fiance yeah. of of his girlfriend or the the girl that he has a crush on. Um, so we cut directly to Landers' funeral. Fanshawe, the fiance, is understandably heartbroken, but Margaret and Andrew are here also, but they're just standing way in back just waiting for everybody else to leave margaret prays over the coffin and then andrew just starts walking away toward foliage in the background like i live in the woods now <laughs> hey look at that a headstone that says rosario bonamo b-o-n-n-a-m-o we've solved one mystery today <laughs> the dates read 1922 to 1964 suggesting that this guy was 42 when he got 666 kebobbed <laughs> Margaret puts a hand on the headstone and commands Lucifer to die. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. It also reminds me of that preacher commanding COVID out of the country. <laughs> Standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. Oh, Margaret moves a few headstones away to brush the leaves from Father Damon's grave and finds the word murderer carved into his headstone. Yeah, it it also seems in bad taste to put him in the same grave. Yeah, like like a couple feet away from the guy you killed. I I don't want to be buried. We bury these people in chronological order. (laughs) (laughs) Only one other person died in between them. Yeah. We keep cutting back to Andrew on a tree swing, looking up at the branches, and we're looking down at him from the perspective of the branch that he's hanging from. Right. Um, Margaret prays over Damon's grave, and then we see Fanshawe tossing and turning in bed as Andrew stares intently into the sky until, and I thought we were looking up at the branch that he's swinging from, but we switch to looking up at the branch that she's praying under, Mm -hmm. and it breaks loose from the tree and smashes her to the ground. And then Fanshawe sits up in bed and shouts, Mikhail, because she's worried about Mikhail slash Margaret, who looks dead here for a second. Right. Back at home... Gabrielle slash Fanshawe is writing on the floor, and we cut to Father Damon writing on the floor of his jail cell years earlier. Raphael is sending a message through time to Gabrielle. Gab- Gabrielle? Gab- Gabrielle? Gabrielle? I can't decide how to say this. I keep changing it. Well, it's it's weird because the angel is Gabriel. Right. <laughs> but they say Gabrielle they, the they do say Gabrielle but then it's also the there's all sorts of different pronunciations for the the archangels because it's Michael or Mikhail yeah or Mikhail and there's, so there's all sorts of different ways to say these names and he was the one with the navy right <laughs> Mikhail's navy <Yeah>. yes <laughs> Raphael is sending a message through time to Gabrielle and keeps having to stop when a jail guard tells him that it's time to eat so the message gets interrupted as Raphael is thrown to the floor of his jail cell, we see Fanshawe drop to the floor of her bedroom, and when the guard steps on Raphael's hands, she feels that as well. We fade directly from her hand being crushed on the floor to a doctor leaving her bedroom, having given her a sedative. 
The next morning, we see Mikhail, Margaret, survived her attack and splashes some water on her face from a water pump before she heads home. Gabrielle slash Fanshawe wakes up in the middle of the night and packs a backpack before following voices out into the darkness. Fanshawe wanders into Margaret's house and tells Margaret that a voice led her here and she doesn't know whose voice it is. Margaret assures Fanshawe that together the two of them can accomplish a vague goal. She's just <laughs> like, don't worry, we're going to do this together. But okay, so here's my problem with this though, because I'm pretty sure that no one knows the day or the hour that the son of man will come not even right. the angels yeah. in heaven matthew told us but they're not <laughs> in heaven oh! oh so the angels on earth know yeah okay touche you win <laughs> and what they hold true on earth he hold true in heaven we learned that from ben affleck <laughs> in dogma I like I like that your your total sum knowledge of Catholicism all from comes movies. from Dogma. <laughs> and the Catholicism I, WoW campaign. <laughs> when we worked at Blockbuster, there were like church groups would come in and rent Dogma and tell us how accurate to like biblical study it was. That's they were funny. like that it's actually a really good example of dogmatic law and how it's supposed to work in the Bible. Well, I was actually surprised at how much like religion was really weaved into this story. Yeah. That I'm like, somebody did some research. Yeah. But there's no way you could turn that castle into a golf course. No. It's it's not big enough. You just got to add a windmill to the front of it. <laughs> no, build on a swamp. <laughs> the next morning, Fanshawe finishes her breakfast and thanks Margaret for her kindness. She says she must be going because her parents are probably worried sick. So you just stayed here all night? Yeah. And she, and she can't call home because she doesn't have any electronics. Yeah. Margaret begs her to stay and she asks if... Well, maybe I could just use your phone. And Margaret says, I don't have a phone or electricity. I can just use your phone let my parents know where I am. I have one. Not a telephone or an electric light bulb in the house. I don't believe in modern conveniences. It's amazing that I'm an hour into this movie and I'm still calling this character Fanshawe because that's what it vaguely sounded like the teacher said her last name was. <laughs> Since then, in the ensuing 45 minutes, nobody has mentioned her name once and she's been in every other scene. She makes fun of Margaret, and we even get the moment where her boyfriend says, I'll be Dr. Mark Landers, and you'll be Mrs. Mrs. Mark Landers. <laughs> it's like, God damn it. You could have just said her name there. She makes fun of Margaret for a while for living off the grid. She lists off the pros and cons to herself. Nobody to bother you. Nobody to make your life interesting. Nobody to love. Suddenly, Margaret is pissed and grabs her hard by the wrist and drags her through the house. She points Fanshawe at the photograph of her and Father Damien and asks if this is the man who speaks to her. She confirms it's him. Margaret tells Fanshawe that their hearts beat as one and that along with Father Damien, they are three people with a common purpose. We cut to Andrew playing fetch with a dog and he throws a stick into a shed. The dog follows the stick into the shed and then Andrew follows the dog with an axe and we get a musical sting like maybe something unpleasant might happen in there. Here's where I would like to point out that the credits specify all animals appearing in this film were under the supervision of Kenneth F. Wynn, DVM. So this is a sedated dog, hopefully, and not yeah. a dead one, though it very closely resembles a dead dog. I don't know what DVM stands for. A doctor of veterinary medicine. Okay. <laughs> there we go. I did not know that. Uh, though, presumably, <laughs> though presumably the dogs hanging from the ceiling are dead. <laughs> 
because for some reason it seems worse if they're alive. <laughs> we cut inside the barn where Andrew lays the dog corpse across a table and starts undressing next to it. He holds a cup under the dog's head while he squeezes dog head juice <laughs> out of the dog. Okay, just to be fair, it looks like blood. <laughs> Andrew drinks the dog's blood and then buries his face in the dog's belly. Dan- <laughs> I was like, what? why a dog? I don't know. I don't know. But he is, regardless of the dog being sedated, he is aggressively grabbing yeah. at its at its fur. And I get that you can, you know, like... As puppies, you you know you could pick a dog up by the scruff of the neck, and it's 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 okay. But like, it's it still bothers it's me. It's very disturbing to, to watch. watch him grab the scruff of a what maybe, looks like a dead dog. Maybe they just had a vet there to confirm. Yes, the dog is dead. Now you can handle <laughs> it. I am supervising this dead dog. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret tries to get a hold of the priest to discuss something with him, but he's in a hurry today. Apparently, the church is putting on a show, and the mayor is here to see it. He also brought along a guy named Dick Laubacher, who works with a news agency and wants to write an article for syndication about their church show. Father Daly says that he's been producing this show since 1948 every year. We get this whole pointless conversation between Daly and Laubacher about the work that goes into the play until they finally separate and Margaret reappears to demand his time and attention. So 1948. He's very young. And But from 1948 to 1963... He must have known Father Damon. Right. Yeah. That's a long time. I mean, you know, to know the guy and still think he's capable of yeah, something exactly. that monstrous? I, I, I thought, I thought at, before this, I thought, oh, yeah, Father Damon killed a guy and so the church put in a new priest. Right. Not, no, not he's that been a priest a, here also. <laughs> yeah, they have a long-standing relationship. She tries again to read to Daly from Damon's diary, but he won't hear it. A crowd forms on the beach to watch this church performance. I'm convinced the only reason that there's a beach here is to nail home that this is supposed to remind you of Jaws. Yeah. (laughs) Because the mayor being like, oh, yeah, this show's going to be great. I'm very Mm -hmm. excited. We're going to get so much tourism. I brought a guy here that's going to help our tourism. A man resembling Jesus and wearing a crown of thorns moves through the crowd and kids rush to hug him. Tony and Marie pull up somewhere in his convertible. And Marie opens the glove compartment for no reason to find a handgun. What the hell is that? What the hell does it look like, a tampon? Tony takes the gun in his hand and scratches his head with it before putting it against Marie's temple and threatening to shoot her if he doesn't get his way tonight. I think he pulls the trigger here. He does. But it just clicks because it's not loaded. He absolutely pulls the trigger here, which is nutty. Marie is weirdly cool with this whole bit. You know, you're really nuts. You know that? Again, I'm sure you heard it in the background there, but we have the Talking Heads Psycho Killer playing, and mm-hmm. I don't understand why this movie has a Blu-ray, and we're still sitting around waiting for Little Darlings to get a decent DVD. Yeah. <laughs> Tony and Marie begin making out in the car, and he pushes the gun up between her legs. I guess he thought it was a tampon, too. Yeah. This thing ain't loaded, right? Just don't cough. <laughs> What? What does that mean? Am <laughs> I gonna pull the trigger if you cough? <laughs> <laughs> we already know it's and we already know it's empty. Yeah. Well, it's, at, least what, that, we it, at least that round was yeah. in yeah. there. It, it might not be fully loaded, like Herbie. <laughs> what? Stop! It was not funny. <laughs> You're only encouraging him, Richard. We cut to a bar where Andrew's father walks in. Remember this character, the father <laughs> of the Devil Kid. Anyway, he orders an unintelligible drink. What a big Jenny Crane. 
sounds like he says Jenny Cream, <laughs> which might be a reference to Genesee Cream Ale, which is an alcoholic beverage that's existed since the 60s. But I have no idea if it was available anywhere this film takes place. Because I don't know where this film takes place. Maybe maybe Richie can try to make one of those. Oh, uh, yeah. No, 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 thank you. It's just like an egg cream, it's but you replace like an egg the cream. egg with Jenny. <laughs> It can also be 20 other drink orders because everyone in this movie swallows their lines and every scene is layered in expensive music cues. <laughs> Mr. Williams proclaims to the bar, the devil. His neighbor at the bar mistakes the comment for a figure of speech and starts complaining about his own son totaling his car. Mr. Williams starts repeating louder and louder that his son is the devil until he goes crazy. My son's the devil! <laughs> a bartender has to drag him out of the place and he smashes his face against a jukebox. We cut across town to a church show about to begin, and then into a restaurant where Marie is waiting for Tony to get back from the restroom. Suddenly, Tony and another guy burst through the bathroom door, fist fighting, probably because Tony accidentally kissed this guy for 25 seconds. <laughs> Tony says that the guy pissed on his shoes, and then the guy admits that he did, but he couldn't <laughs> help it? <laughs> what are they talking about? I don't understand how this scene began. What a weird fucking moment to put in an already very strange movie. A cop tells Tony that he's drunk and has to get out of here before he calls the police. Aren't you the fucking police? <laughs> you're wearing a cop shirt and you have a gun on a holster. What You're, you're, you're telling me you're going to threaten to call someone to come arrest me? We cut back to that cool castle again. Andrew climbs up to the balcony that Bonnaroo, or whatever the fuck his name was, was standing on at the start of the film and begins reciting some incantation into the night sky. He has a pentagram burnt into his chest that we notice as he unbuttons his shirt. Do I, Lucifer, and the power of the unholy trinity, my brothers, Beelzebub and Leviathan, stay behind spirits, take these, the flesh, of your earthbound servants and rise rise if you're wondering what that means andrew is suddenly a necromancer and offers the corpses of this cemetery as hosts for his underworld brethren zombies begin peeling their way out of the stonework the corpses of the workmen buried on site the makeup effects for the zombie skin are apparently painted cornflakes in addition to all these zombies someone has put a cow skull atop a jesus statue and the skull is capable of looking around at all the new zombies. <laughs> the zombies gather to move through the woods as more of them struggle their way out of the grass and back above ground. One of them looks really cool. It just reminds me of that the cemetery in uh, Beetlejuice when okay. he comes out of the ground. But there's like a guy that's like pushing his way up through. Like you see the grass yeah. bulging mm -hmm. and yeah. then he tears it open. It just looks really neat. Some of them are carrying pickaxes and shovels like they were still carrying the tools they worked with when right, they got right, murdered right. in place. Well, they all look pretty fresh, too. Yeah. So we're not, we're not really banking on accuracy here. <laughs> we cut back to the church play. Jesus says some Jesus stuff. We cut back to Margaret's house where she unwraps the big metal crucifix that should be in an evidence locker after Father Damon used it to pierce a sternum. <laughs> all the kids that got thrown out of the restaurant for being drunk suddenly race down a dock and trade a man beer for his rowboat. Like, why didn't we just start here? What was There was no point to the diner scene of yeah. them getting kicked out. Just have them There's want to party. There's a few scenes so far that could be <laughs> lifted completely. I'm guessing that what happened was there was some other way that all these kids died, and they had to change it when they added zombies to the story. Maybe. But the man is pissed that they took his boat against his will, 
and they head straight to the castle, now swarming with zombies, awaiting Andrew's orders. I am the life source. I shall be like the most high. Dude, <laughs> I shall be like the most high. We cut back to the dumb play where Jesus says more Jesus stuff. The scene is now the Last Supper, and then we cut back to the docks where Margaret and Fanshawe are asking the guy with zero boats if they can borrow a boat for cash. He walks away from them. All the drunk kids from the rowboat are crowded around a fountain outside the castle, and Andrew points at them and grunts as if to sick his zombies on the crowd of kids. So far, in an hour and 20 minutes, Andrew has only killed one kid, and it seemed very much by accident because he expressed clear remorse. But suddenly we cut somewhere. The guy is talking into a phone. Maybe the guy that was sitting next to Mr. Williams at the bar. Maybe a totally new guy. No, this is this the, boat, is the, boat, the guy. boat guy. Oh, okay. He's telling the person on the other end that he has information regarding the missing Fanshawe girl. I know now that it's Fanshawe and not Fanshawe because I can see a newspaper on the table where her surname is spelled out. But also, how long has she been missing to the point where everyone already knows she's missing? Yeah, can it's he, in the he, newspapers? Yeah. It's just been a couple of days. Has it been a couple of days? Didn't he pick her up at the house this morning? I don't know. Yeah. Either way, she's apparently missing. Well, she at least spent the night at What's-Her-Face's house. Oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah. But it wouldn't be a front-page story the next day yeah. <laughs> that she disappeared in the middle of the night. Suddenly, we cut back to that room with the old lady and the cobwebs. Remember that from like an hour ago? <laughs> yeah, me barely too. Mr. Williams shoots the lock off the door from outside and then wanders in to find the old lady alive, scared, and dripping with cobwebs. Did he know she was in there? I presume yes. I think they've kept her in there and, but, all these but years. But he seems to not care about her anymore. Right. I think what happened is, based on the conversation that he has with the guy at the bar, the guy says something along the lines of, yeah, well, you know, you know, they're e the kids are evil, but they're part of you still, you know, they're... They wouldn't be here without they you. They wouldn't be here without you or something like that. But I think that it's clicking in his head that the evil, if, it, if it, it either came from him or it came from his wife or his wife cheated on him. And so he goes home and he blows open the door yeah. to get into it's her like, room. I'm going to kill you because you're either evil yeah. or the mistress of evil. Yeah. And so he puts the gun to her head and blows her brains out here in the room. And he sends her head like crashing through the window outside yeah. the building. Like he shoots her so hard that she flies through the window. And we see this happen from outside the building. We cut to police arresting Margaret and Fanshawe as they sneak around town with a giant metal crucifix. No, you don't understand. Honestly, stop explaining to people what you think is going on because they're basically required to lock you up if you start talking like this. We see a couple of kids from the stolen rowboat making out in a pool that they found on the castle property. It looks like it's an indoor pool, but they're quickly joined by a bunch of zombies. I think it's a, just a flooded tower. Maybe. Um, but they're, they're skinny dipping in it, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, zombies start joining them here. The guy's name is Bobby, and he climbs out of the pool as soon as he can to leave his girlfriend behind, but he comes face to face with several more zombies waiting around the pool. Another pack of zombies sneak up on and kill all of the kids waiting by the fountain outside. I don't know how they didn't see a giant swarm of zombies that completely encircles the house, but somehow they missed it until the zombies were already upon them. We cut back to the church play where Jesus is being crucified and the soundtrack is playing Thunder. Jesus of the play looks like he's in real pain, and then we get quick inserts of his arms experiencing stigmata. The actors below him on stage notice the blood dripping down his face and from his wrists, 
blood starts spreading up around his waist. Well, it's in his it's in his side where the spear where the spear yeah. would have yeah. pierced him. And he starts shaking to break free of this crucifix prop. A woman in the audience watching the show is confused when her glasses start dripping blood, and so the fuck am I? Why are her glasses bleeding? Does she have a stigmatism? <laughs> <laughs> the whole audience stands and screams, running from the show. Everyone's faces are all bleeding. The stagehands struggle to get Jesus down, and suddenly, lightning is striking their equipment, causing all these speakers and lights to explode. People are collapsed all over the floor, bleeding and shaking from electrocution. One man collapses into the surf just in time for lightning to strike him there, and it's very cool looking. <laughs> yeah, cool. I was like, oh my god. Okay, so here's my question. Yes. Is this the work of Lucifer, or is no. this the second coming? This is the second coming. Okay, so- That guy was Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't know, because shit happens in the second coming, you know? like Yes, I, no, I think this is supposed to be the second coming, that okay. they've, they've called it by doing this passion play on the beach. <laughs> You asked for it. <laughs> yeah. Another crowd of people try to scale a chain link fence, and we can guess how that's going to go. Nope, I was wrong. <laughs> no more lightning. The cops arrive as everybody's leaving the venue in a hurry. Apparently, they brought Margaret and Fanshawe here and then left the car unlocked so they could get out of the back seat. Margaret struggles to swim upstream from the exiting crowd. She begins praying to the Jesus actor on the cross when she hears Raphael's voice say, We three are one now, Mikhail. It is the eve of the second coming to the, to the temple. Margaret rushes back to Fanshawe, and Jesus is struck by lightning and set aglow on the crucifix. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Now Margaret is stealing the police car. Amazingly, some of the drunk teenagers who stole a rowboat are still out of earshot from all of their dead friends. Of course, the last two are Tony and Marie making out at the bottom of a staircase into the basement of the castle. Tony is telling Marie that he will protect her, and that no one will ever get their filthy hands on her. But just as he says this, we're seeing the understandably filthy hand of a zombie reaching up through a leaf pile to grab Marie's foot. She starts screaming, and Tony runs away when he realizes that they're not alone here. Suddenly, more zombies are shambling down the stairs, and he makes a run for it. Outside, Tony finds Marie's best friend, Brenda, mourning the death of her boyfriend, whoever that was. Tony shakes her out of her shock and grabs a knife before leaving back to the rowboat. The boat is flooded, so they can't start it. Margaret and Fanshawe park the police car by the docks and steal a second boat to row across to the castle instead of just driving the police car there. I I, I think it's completely surrounded by water. Well, yeah. maybe maybe it is in the movie, but in real life it's not, which is what was confusing me because I had already ah, like looked up yeah. where the castle okay. was. But, I, but they have never shown it connected to land. And True. I, and I think the concept when they show a ferry driving around it to, to show it off is that it's just totally flooded. That makes sense. Tony and Brenda kick in a door to the castle and start running from room to room. They stop for a moment to catch their breath, and Brenda starts crying on the floor. Tony notices in a mirror across the room while looking into it that his chest has bulges. He starts to fondle himself above the shirt and then tears it open to reveal that all those years of smoking marijuana have caused him to grow <laughs> full-on female breasts. He starts screaming, and Brenda is freaking out. Andrew appears in the doorway, wearing the big black robe with flowy sleeves that we saw earlier. He laughs in Tony's face, and Tony tries to stab him with the knife he collected, but Andrew is too strong for him. Andrew forces a second kiss on Tony, and then shoves him against the wall where Brenda is. Understanding that he can't kill Andrew, Tony instead stabs himself to death, shouting, Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! 
which I was not expecting, but that's such a cool moment. Yeah, but I was I was immediately reminded of Wesley laying on the bed when uh, Robin Wright's about to kill herself on the Princess Bride. Yeah, but there's a shortage of perfect breasts in this world. <laughs> ruin yours. That would be great. So he is stabbing himself here, but he's being forced to do so, right? I didn't think so. I thought he was stabbing himself so that he couldn't be killed by Lucifer. Oh. Or whatever this I thought he is. was being forced to do that to himself. I, I, Just the fact that he's saying fuck you while he's doing it. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, oh, you're forcing me to do this. You know, fuck oh, maybe. you. Uh, yeah. But he had this knife, and instead mm-hmm. he's turning it on himself because Lucifer's making him do that. Yeah, I guess it's not clear enough whether or not he's in power of himself. He collapses in Brenda's lap now, and she's alone with Lucifer. Andrew lifts her and walks out of the castle. He lays her down on a platform outside under the Jesus statue with a cow skull and starts to make out with her. As soon as their lips touch, her mouth is instantly bleeding. He unbuttons her shirt and grabs a sharp knife to sacrifice her, but Fanshawe and Margaret arrive just in time to hit the snooze button on the apocalypse and kick the can down the road again. <laughs> because I, I figured he was just going to suck the crucifix over to stab himself and then be a baby. Andrew plunges the knife into Brenda's chest and Margaret whips a blanket off of the end of the crucifix staff, which blasts a holy light into Andrew's face. Andrew runs away up the stairs into the castle, all the while growling like a monster. If only they'd shown up with this thing unwrapped, Brenda might still be alive. As Margaret and Fanshawe pursue Andrew, zombies are bursting in through all the windows around them. Fanshawe and Margaret get to the same place where Father Damon was, when the previous Lucifer incarnation appeared on the balcony. We cut up to the balcony, where Andrew is standing with his arms spread wide. Margaret and Fanshawe chase Andrew to the same tree from the beginning. I don't understand why this crucifix didn't glow for Father Damon, because he pulled it out, he was like holding it when he was close to the guy. Maybe it's because he was alone. Maybe. And they needed to work together to make this happen. But the crucifix seems to absorb something from Andrew, and Margaret makes them do a couple Our Fathers, but he's not very good at them. Our Father! Oh, Our Father? Not my father! Hashtag not my father. Margaret takes his hand and holds it to her chest as she talks him through the prayer. For this whole scene, Fanshawe was just standing there holding the crucifix up. Andrew gets the whole way through the prayer and lifts his right hand, which is glowing with an upside-down crucifix burn, Andrew backhands Margaret to the ground and approaches Fanshawe. From Fanshawe's perspective, she sees her dead fiancé, Landers. Fanshawe seems very susceptible to his trickery, even as Margaret pleads with her to see through the illusion. She shoves Andrew back a step, and he wraps a hand around her throat and lifts her into the air. Instead of doing anything about it, Fanshawe kneels and cries in the grass. Suddenly, Andrew's face turns into a full-on demon face. Yeah. Like the makeup work for demons on Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. (laughs) His eyes are glowing like that thing that hatched from a Lucifer's egg in Witch's Brew last year. He tosses Margaret into the distance, and we see her body rolling over and over in the grass until eventually coming to a stop. And I think she's dead for real this time. Yeah, she's dead. Fanshawe crawls on her hands and knees to the now-bent crucifix, and as she touches it, the light beams out of it again. She points the beam at Andrew and holds it tight. The crucifix is starting to do weird things, and she lets go of it as it vaporizes in her hand. It floats up into the sky and then crashes down, stabbing into the dirt in front of Andrew. It looks like God is trying to use laser tattoo removal to get the pentagram off of his chest. (laughs) Fanshawe is silhouetted in another beam of sparkling light and begins undressing in silhouette. 
Suddenly, the silhouettes of Margaret and Father Damon join her and also undress. The three of them merge into one white-hot beam, and we hear one of them say, Behold the promise. The laser sets Andrew's chest on fire. He cries out loud about what he was promised by the prophecy, and then, when he throws his arms wide, he is struck by lightning and glows many colors before exploding into a thousand multicolored balls of light shooting in every direction. Lights all fade away, and we're left with just the stone archway from the beginning of the film, and then we fade to black on that. I was like, please end the film right here. Yeah, this no, is the perfect ending. Leave it. I don't want like a denouement where like like she's like wandering around. 15 years like, later, and we yeah. see, oh, she got accepted to a college, and yeah, she's yeah, going to no, recover. No. End it. Just end it. And they do. That's the end of the film. Uh, by the way, according to the credits, Fanshawe's first name is Julie, even though it is never said in the entire film. Our writer-director here was Frank Laloja. Uh, he also co-wrote the music for the film, as well as dubbing over the voice of the Christ character in the Passion Play. He also wrote and directed Lady in White with Lucas Haas in 1988. He also appears as a pizza delivery boy in 1977's Fun with Dick and Jane. Editor Edna Ruth Paul also edited Evil Dead. Hmm. Stefan Arngram played Andrew Williams. He was Barry Lockridge in 51 episodes of Land of the Giants. I'll discuss his work in Getting Wasted from 1980's belated anniversary minisode later this year. He's also Drugstore in Class of 1984, and he's one of Ghost Blake's men in the Fog remake. Okay. Elizabeth Hoffman played Mikhail slash Margaret Buchanan. This was her first film, the lady playing Margaret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she plays Meryl Streep's mom in The River Wild, and she's B. Ventner in 127 episodes of something called Sisters, which I've never heard of. And she was also the the Linda Hamilton's mother in Dante's Peak. Oh, okay. The one that they have to like wheel out to get away from the lava. Well, well yeah, like well she's she like yeah, they they got into the boat and she like burns in the acid as she's right. trying to push the boat yeah, yeah, by yeah. hand. Frank Burney played Father Daly. He was also a priest in Critters Two and a priest in Mafia. And he's a barber in Chud too. <laughs> he also played a number of judges on uh, David E. Kelly shows. Yeah. So I was like, he's always in robes. That's funny. <laughs> uh, Alice Sachs played Mrs. Williams, the mother of the devil. She was Mrs. Ezra in Seems Like Old Times last month. Mrs. Ezra, I think, is the mother of the Charles Grodin character. Wasn't his last name Ezra? don't remember i feel like people called him ezra in that movie uh and that's a wrap on alice Sachs. <laughs> she was in two <laughs> movies and we've covered both of them richard j silverthorne played lucifer he also provided the makeup effects for this film and later wrote the novelization of the film's story huh. uh most of the people in here uh not unlike what was the other movie that we had where they just didn't have any credits outside of the movie that we were doing that <laughs> oh that's what it was yeah <laughs> But I think these guys did a better job than Zat. <laughs> this was better than Zat. <laughs> eh. um, yeah, this movie's a lot of fun. The The visual effects, I think, work great the, yeah. that Avco came in and saved the film with. Yep. Um, the plot is crazy enough uh, to keep me entertained. I think that this would make an excellent double feature with The Visitor, especially given that they're both, like, you know, biblical analogies and... Mm -hmm. um, 
is just totally like batshit crazy. Yeah, especially time. especially the third act. The yeah, third act of this movie just goes absolutely insane. And and it's really a nice print. Um, the, the cinematography is great the whole way throughout for mm-hmm. a first time cinematographer. Um, it doesn't feel like somebody's first movie at 25 that they scrounged up money in their hometown to make. Yeah, for sure. It feels like it feels more like a Corman situation where these people pump out movies all the time and they know how to get movies done on the cheap. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but that's not what this was. This was a, a guy's, you know, he cared about it. It was a passion project for him. Um, but I would definitely recommend people check this out. I'll also give it a thumbs up. Yes, I, I'm, I'm giving it a thumbs up. Uh, it, it was just weird enough to keep my attention all the way through. Yeah. E- even though it, it drags a little in the beginning and I wasn't sure what was happening with like establishing what happened in the past and then keep flashing back to the past. And But once I had a handle on the story, I yeah. was like, yeah. okay. All yeah. Right. I never had an issue following the story. I think that because I didn't care about tracking names and people mm-hmm. like you do, yeah. I'm just like, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this. And I did. Yeah. Letterboxed wise, I think this is going in second place for me, just under scanners. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think. Ditto. Yeah. This is <laughs> the same for me. <laughs> um, I'm not confident that it will be there for very long. Um, but uh, for right now, that uh, definitely is going to hold. I think place. it'll hang on for a bit because it's, although it's probably a middle of the road movie in the end. It's, it's very fun. It's it's enjoyable, and yeah. so it, being one of those that I might want to watch again just because it's a, it's a fun watch. It it might hang out up top for that's a little true. while. I think that's everything for Fear No Evil. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find the button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also search for Vintage Video Pod on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Blood Beach which IMDb describes like so. Something, or someone, is attacking people one by one on the beach. Some of them are mutilated, but most of them are sucked into the sand, disappearing without a trace. We leave you now with the trailer for Blood Beach. Pretty, isn't it? The beaches of LA. Playground of America. Until this beach turned into a living nightmare. You said creature. Why did you use that word? I don't know. What would you call it? Blood Beach, man. Yeah, right on. (laughs) Blood Beach. The beach is a weird beat for us cops. You've got the kids, the old people, the street fiddlers, those singles. uh, The crazies all lost in their own world. There was every form of human life on this beach. Mattress Bermudas, bleeding mattress. They were kind of old, but you know, they were his favorite pair. They were still in good condition. But under the beach, there was this, I don't know, this horrible thing. And we still haven't figured it out. What the hell are we looking for? I don't know. But maybe if we dig deep enough, we'll find out. We police always look for the obvious, but this wasn't normal. Nah. Not even for California. Doctors figure that there's been considerable brain damage. 
How considerable. Vegetable soup. When something like this is chasing you. If it's human, or even if it's animal, it's got to have a place to go back to. Kind of sad the way things have changed, huh, Mr. Selden? If there was any hope, we didn't have it. We didn't know a damn thing. It's when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. There comes a time when you throw out all the rules and you make your move. Blood Beach, it's an okay place to visit. But I wouldn't want to die there. I'm not kidding! Blood Beach. David Huffman, Mariana Hill, John Saxon, and Burke Young as Lieutenant Boyko. Blood Beach. Where the water may be the safest place to be.